Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. The letter that St. Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. You guys ready? Let's do it. Okay, so... um, I grew up in a nominally religious home. And uh, when I got into high school, I started to get into some trouble, dabbled in drugs and dating and trying to figure out who I was. And then when I was 15, I got invited to youth group. And God began to do something. And I heard this message for the first time that my sins could be washed clean, that I was unconditionally loved no matter what. And all I had to do was believe and receive. There was no other requirement and shame could be washed away and I could be made new. It was a powerful message, right? This message of unconditional love and I was in. And and, uh, to use Paul's language, there was a salvation that comes by grace through faith that reveals this great love of God. And what I was taught is that because God loved us in such this, this, extravagant way, this, this just unconditional way, that that was a love we were supposed to take out, that we were supposed to give that love to one another. And we were supposed to build a community based on that love where everyone was welcome, no matter where they came from. And no book of the Bible seemed to focus more on this great love of God than Romans. 
this awesome love of God that wanted to transform everything. And I love the book of Romans and I delighted in this message of salvation by grace through faith. It was a message of radical love and Romans was the book that I, that I taught on many times in order to teach people what it meant to know Jesus. But over time, some problems have come up. Some of you have kind of related to these. We, we've seen some good anxiety around the book of Romans over the, the last month as we've been talking about it. Um, I teased Amanda on the, the Facebook chat when I told her we were doing Romans. She said, well, I'll see you in six months. Um, so some of the things that come up around Romans, you might be able to relate to this a little bit. When I was first introduced to Romans, it was a story about how much God loved me. But then I began to, to hear it told as a story pretty much about how much God actually kind of hates us. A story that really focused on how sinful and how depraved we were and how God was ultimately kind of disappointed in us. And disappointed is probably the mild statement. Maybe you've heard this gospel. It kind of goes a little bit like this. It says, God actually doesn't like you very much. But in God's grace, God pulls a little cosmic switcheroo. And instead of hating you, hates Jesus for just a couple minutes. And because of this, now when God looks in you, he sees Jesus instead of you. And because of this, you get a pass to heaven. Now, God doesn't actually like you. God just accepts you. Have you kind of heard that gospel? It's not the gospel of God being the, the, the great lover who wants to come and redeem his bride. It's the gospel of the disappointed dad who has to bail his kid out of prison, but is actually still like pretty disappointed in his kid and is waiting for his son or his daughter to screw up again. Maybe you've experienced that. Have you, do you guys know that one? It's not what the book of Romans teaches, and yet it's, Romans is where we get that that gospel and this idea of depravity and all that it's it's we'll come back to that romans is also typically the place you want to live if you want to separate the gospel story from ethics um romans is your book if you want to stay up till three in the morning and debate predestination um if you've kind of been into that uh Romans is the book for the overeducated uh, white guy on Twitter who wants to debate theology and correct everybody. You guys might know that guy. I think some of our baggage with uh, Romans might have to do with like theology bros. If you if you ever come across theology bros, they're, they're quick. Of course, they have a blog and they're there to make sure that everybody else gets their theology right. Maybe you've had that experience and that's kind of your baggage with Romans is they're ready to go to debate about Romans, but not really concerned with what it means to be a good human being. Romans is also where you go, of course, if you want to build a Christianity without Jesus. There is a stream of Christianity that does this. This kind of skips straight from the fall in Genesis 3 and brings us right to the cross and then onto the book of Romans to explain what it all means. And you get to completely ignore the gospels, the story of Jesus, and the calling to be like Jesus. And so before we enter into Romans, this is where I get to remind us, of course, that we are not actually Paulists. We're Christians. And that the book of Romans submits to Jesus like the rest of the Bible as well. And so when we don't understand Romans, when we're befuddled by it, when we're confused by it, we actually bring it back to Jesus 
and help Jesus to clarify it for us. And it's a reminder, of course, too, that any reading of Romans that doesn't help us look and smell more like Jesus is actually a bad reading of Romans. So maybe that's your baggage with Romans, that it's a Christianity that doesn't actually look very much like Jesus. And so we're going to try and reclaim that a little bit as we go along. And of course, historically, Romans doesn't always have a great track record. This is the book that Augustine used to argue for the forced conversion of the pagans in Rome. This would have been the book that Luther used to argue for anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages. It's a book that's been used to justify violence against the LGBT community. And of course, just a few years ago, it was the book that was quoted by our attorney general to justify locking kids in cages at the border. So we have some work to do. But here's the thing. I believe that tremendous love story that I discovered at age 16 is still there. And in fact, it's actually way bigger than I realized at the time. There is a righteousness that comes by grace through faith and it's not a moral improvement plan. It's God radically making all things new. God isn't just saving souls, but destroying injustice and liberating the, the oppressed and bringing about the kingdom of God. And his means to do so is a new people based not on status or an ethnicity, but sewn together in this unconditional love of God. And that includes you and me. We are part of that. There is an unconditional love that God has unleashed on his creation and it won't stop until it makes all things new. Amen? Let me say that again. There's an unconditional love that God has unleashed on his creation, and it won't stop until it makes all things new. Amen? So as we re-enter the book of Romans, again, I want to remind you, you are safe. We are okay. We're going to go through this together. All questions are welcome. All baggage can be processed. All doubts are welcome. But I invite you to come in with as much openness as possible. Openness to what God wants to do, both in you and in our community. What God wants to do in these words of Paul. How God wants to change us to see just the bigness and the beauty of this gospel that he has for us. So you ready? You guys ready to dive into Romans? Okay. That was an unenthusiastic response. You guys ready to do Romans? All right. All right. So, hey, let's do some facts about Romans. Let's do a little teaching about the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is written by Paul. Paul, of course, we know from the book of Acts, he's a Hellenistic Jew, a convert to Christianity, and he's spent much of the last 20 years before this book traveling around the Mediterranean world planting churches. Um, the book is written between 54 and 58 AD. It's um, written from Corinth. Paul has, like I said, been spending uh, the last 20 years planting churches, 
And at this point, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has collected an offering for the Jewish churches that are in Jerusalem that are suffering hardship from the Gentile churches that he's planted, and he's going to bring it to Jerusalem. And he says in the letter that after he goes to Jerusalem, then he plans to go to Rome, and then from there, launch a new mission to Spain. Um, Paul has not actually been to Rome. He says that, that he has not been there yet. So he's writing to a community he doesn't actually know. Um, one of the reasons Paul is writing is to actually develop a base of support for his ministry to Spain. We see that there's a very practical end to what he's doing. And also, since Paul is a pretty well-known figure in the early church, there's probably some degree of he's explaining his beliefs that may have been not presented in a favorable way in Rome. We do know uh, from history that this, it doesn't actually play out this way. Paul goes to Jerusalem where he is arrested and he's held in prison for two years in Caesarea in Israel. And then ultimately he is brought to Rome. This is all told in the story of Acts where eventually he is martyred somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. So like I said, Paul is in Corinth when he's writing this book. Um, he's staying with someone named Gaius, and the letter is transcribed by someone named Tertius, and it's delivered by Phoebe the deacon. Uh, he says that, I commend you, Phoebe. She's going to bring the letter. Um, we know uh, Phoebe is a deacon of, a of the church of Cancrea, however you say that. It's the port city of uh, Corinth. So she probably hosted the church that was there in that city. She's also a benefactor of Paul. So she's someone who obviously had means and is going to be able to, to travel to Rome and deliver this letter. It's also a good reminder that when, you know, in the ancient world, when you received a letter, they probably wouldn't have like passed it around, you know, made 25 copies on the copy machine and passed it around. Instead, the community in Rome would have been pulled in and Phoebe most likely would have been the person that read this to the entire community. So they would have heard the entire letter front to back, which is impressive, out loud. And it's a good reminder that this letter was meant to be received communally. So anytime you hear the word you in the book of Romans, it's actually y'all. Um, that's actually a really good reminder. One of the ways we've messed this book up is reading it very individual, individualistically, but in fact, it was written to a community and it would have been received by a community and was meant to be received communally. So just a reminder, there are lots of y'alls in the book of Romans. Uh, you gotta embrace your southernness here. It's a, it's, there's a y'all thing going on. As for the Roman church, the people receiving this, we don't know when it was founded, but by the time Paul is writing, it appears to be a pretty large group. We'll see this in Romans 16. Paul can address a lot of different people. Probably a series of house churches that would have met in different parts of the city and they got together in large gatherings on occasion. One of the things that seems to prompt the writing is that they're having trouble when they get together in a large group. And one of the things we know from history is that the house churches were probably ethnically and theologically diverse. And the reason we know this is because the, before there were ever house churches in Rome, there were house synagogues in Rome. As the Jewish diaspora happened, Jewish people spread out around the ancient world. And the, uh, these synagogues, particularly in Rome, were notorious for being kind of all over the map. So you would have had very conservative Jewish communities that insisted on following every letter of the Old Testament law all the way to very secular Jewish communities, often who worked for the empire, who were part of the government in some way. So you kind of have this whole slew of, of Jewish communities there, and then you introduce Jesus into the mix. 
So among the house churches that you would have had, you would have had Jewish Christians who insisted on people following every aspect of the law. You would have had Jewish Christians who said that we no longer are bound to the law. You would have had Gentile Christians who may have uh, been following Judaism in some way before and said, no, of course we have to follow the law. That's what it means. We're entering into the story of Judaism. And then you probably had Gentile Christians who kind of went the whole, uh, a whole different direction, which is to say, uh, we've replaced Judaism. We are the new people of God. And in fact, you need to leave behind that old stuff. That stuff is superstition. It's the old way. It's time to leave it behind. Um, so it's also, of course, worth noting that the language of Christians and churches is actually anachronistic. This point, Christianity wasn't actually thought of as a new religion, right? This, they would have, saw, would have all seen themselves as some, uh, some aspect of Jewish. Um, So one of the things that probably precipitates this letter is that in 49 AD, the infighting between these different groups gets pretty bad. And the emperor Claudius actually kicks all of the Jewish folks out of Rome. Um, we actually meet in Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, a couple who were Christians in Rome who've been kicked out and we, we meet them in Corinth. Corinth. Um, but in 54 AD, the emperor Claudius dies and the Jews and the Jewish Christians are allowed to move back into Rome. And probably what happens is whatever stasis you had between all these groups breaks. So we have Jewish Christians coming back to the city, probably insisting that everyone has to get circumcised and follow all the food laws. And likewise, we have Gentile Christians bragging about their freedom and their status as the new chosen people who have replaced the Jewish people. And so Paul writes to them, not just to win them over, but to lay out a picture of the gospel that calls both, uh, both of these groups to love, to unity, to worship before Almighty God, calls them both to humility as one people of God, serving together in one household of Christ. We often miss this. Again, we think of this book as all about individual salvation, but it's pro you, if you read it through that lens, you'll see how much this book is actually written about sewing two groups of people together into a new people of God, teaching about a gospel that provides this framework. And again, that's a, that's a, a big deal. Like we often think of Paul as like an angry theologian. You know, sometimes we think about him as the theology, the original theology bro. But he's actually like much more of an angry pastor, if I can uh, redeem him in that way which is to say he's consistently frustrated that he plants these churches that are supposed to be these lights of redemption and they can't get along. They fight with each other, they slander each other, they can't even be in a room together. And so occasionally he knocks some heads together and says, get along dummies. And I say all that just to say like, again, we tend to think of Romans as this book of abstract theology. But he's, he's writing to talk about a gospel that destroys the divisions between us. He, a lot of what he will say in this book doesn't just apply to like me individually, it applies to us. So that's important to remember. The intro to the letter. It's tough. It's kind of rough. 
we can admit that, right? It's, it's, Paul introduces by my count, like at least like 20 vocab words that would probably be worth explaining. And he does so in these long winded winding sentences. So if you didn't understand it when you read it, that makes you pretty normal. Um, again, I've taught on this book many times and you still, when you read this first couple of verses, you're like, wait, why do we, wait, what? Wait, I, you need to like diagram the whole thing out to figure it out. But here's the good news is pretty much every one of these concepts we're going to come back to and Paul's going to explain in much more depth. So we don't necessarily need to master these while we're on Romans 1. But I wanted to take us back to this big statement that Paul makes. And this is kind of the thesis for the book of Romans. And this is it. Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So if you get nothing else out of this passage, I want you to get this. God is up to something, and it's bigger than you think. God is up to something, and it's bigger than you think. And what I want to do is look at four of the vocabulary words in this passage and just look at how we've made these concepts way too small and how much bigger they actually are than the idea we give them. So first of all, first one, gospel, euangelion. What does euangelion mean? What does gospel mean? What was that? Good news, right. Yeah, you might recognize the word angel in there. That means that's the word messenger or a good message. But it's not like any sort of good news, right? It's not like, hey, good news, cereal is half off at Selector right now. You better get over there. Which is good news, of course. And if that were the case, I'd say go, you know, before Selector closes in uh, five minutes. So you might want to get over there. It's specifically a gospel message specifically has to do with an announcement about a new king or a new reign or a great victory. So when Caesar Augustus becomes emperor, right, you send out a gospel. You send out a proclamation throughout the kingdom to say that there is a new king and you are under his reign. And this is what both Paul and Jesus are doing when they talk about a gospel, right? The reign of Christ has begun. The kingdom of God has begun. The gospel isn't just a religious message going out, right? It's not a message of a new religion. It's a proclamation of a new reign, a new reality going out that the kingdom of God is going out, that Christ is the true Lord of this world. It's an overtly political statement that you're actually saying, no, 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 Caesar is not Lord but Christ is. A gospel is not a small thing, it's a big thing. Not only is this a direct challenge to the systems of the world, it's a calling for us to live into this dynamic reality that is the kingdom of God. We live as reconciled people carrying out the love of God in everything we do. Romans 1 teaches that God is up to something and it's bigger than we think. Amen? All right, our second vocab word. 
righteousness is the Greek word dikaiosune. Everybody say that with me. Dikaiosune. Got it? There will be a quiz next week. This is one of the trickier words in the New Testament to translate. It usually ends up as righteousness. But when we hear someone is righteous, what do you, what do you think? You might think they're like really moral, right? Um, do you like that person? Honestly, this word's got them a little tainted in the English language. Usually when we hear that someone's righteous, it actually sounds like pompous or elitist. Instead, what the word righteousness has to do with rightness, as in God's restoration of all things. It has to do with God seeing a broken world and saying, I will make all things new. And so one of the other translations for it is rectification of God setting things right. Um, one of the words that will radically change your view of the book of Romans is if you read this as justice, which is another translation for it. It's where we get the word justify or justification. So when you start to think about God's justice going out into all the world, that's a, that's a, that sparks a very different image in our mind, but that is on this word. N.T. Wright will call it covenant justice. It's the fulfillment of the promises going all the way back to Abraham, that God is going to restore the whole world. And he has in mind to do it through a people. He's carrying forth this, this promise to Abraham all the way through. And the scope of this righteousness, this rectification, this justice is huge. When we get to Romans 8, right, it's, it's not just a sense of God's going to set you right morally. Romans 8 will talk about God's going to restore the entire creation, the entire cosmos, the very physical creation that God has created. The entire universe is going to be set right. So it's bigger than anything we could even get, wrap our minds around. And yet it also goes to the depths of our soul. Again, it's not just about making us moral. It's about God turning us inside out and making us completely new. And it's a reminder that God's restoration is never just a spiritual thing, right? That when it goes out and, and brings the justice of God, that God's restoration will include destroying systems of injustice, of power, and of oppression. God's restoration is really big. And yet somehow it also affects every minute decision and detail of our lives. God is up to something, and it's bigger than you think. Amen? All right, next word. Power. We see this word twice in our, in our passage. It comes from the Greek word dunamis. Does anybody see any English words in that? Dynamic is one. Anything else? Dynamite, that's right. This is actually where the word dynamite comes from. And that's a kind of a good reminder that like when the gospel moves, it blows some things up. In the book of Acts, the apostles are accused of turning the entire world upside down. And it's a reminder that the gospel is not just moral lessons or emotional comfort. It comes to set the captives free. It comes to make every valley high and every mountain low. It comes to turn us inside out. There's a power in the gospel. 
and I, I, I hesitated to put this one in because I didn't want us to think about like violence, right? That we, that we go out in some violence or even like that we, that we get God's power, right? In fact, the book of Romans will, will call us to just the opposite. It calls us to take up our cross and surrender ourselves and then the power of God comes. There's a great power that is in God that is unleashed in the gospel and we simply get to take part. So again, it's not just a religious message. It's not just an emotional comfort. There's a power that goes out in the gospel. God is up to something and it's bigger than you think. Amen? And lastly, faith. Comes from the Greek word pistis, which is where we get a fancy word like epistemology, which if you've never used that, Good for you. Um, you're better off. Faith as a biblical concept is never just an act of intellect, right? It's never a matter of lining up the right doctrine statements and saying, I agree with those things. In fact, if you read the book of James, it says like, even the demons believe in God. They know the truth. Faith is an entering in. It is best understood when Jesus sees the disciples and says to them, come follow me. And at once they left their nets and followed him. The disciples didn't fully know what they were doing. And along the way, they ask a lot of stupid questions and they mess everything up. But nonetheless, they enter in. They enter into the calling of Jesus. They enter into the kingdom of God. They enter into all things new. And this is still our calling today enter in. So God is up to something. Not just in Paul's day, but in our day too. God is up to something, amen? And it's bigger than we think. This will be the consistent message of Romans. Every time we try and hem it in and say who it belongs to or put boundaries around it or say this love only applies to some people and not to others and God only cares for some people and not others, Romans blows it up. It says this love is bigger than anything we could imagine. There's an unconditional love that God has unleashed on his creation and it won't stop until it makes all things new. Amen? This is the good news of the book of Romans. And I look forward to walking with you guys for the next several months through it. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.